from Philippians. So I'll give you a time to, to turn or to scroll or whatever. So the first one is Luke 1. Say like, uh, I don't know, 11 to 17 maybe. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right uh, side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and gripped with fear. The angel said to him, Do not be afraid. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. He will be great in the sight of the Lord. Uh, Skip 16. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. All right, the second one. And the order's intentional here. Luke 2, 8 through 12. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord showed around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you great news that will cause great joy for all people. Today in the town of David a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord, and this will be a sign to you. You'll find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. All right, let's get back to Luke 1. Luke 1, 39 through 34. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leapt in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. Why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. All right, last one. Philippians 4, read verse 1 and then 4 through 7. Therefore, brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. Rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So as you all know, I don't usually uh, preach on a bunch of uh, small fragments, but that's kind of how the cookie crumbles on Joy Day in Advent, or Redemption Day if you're on the Bonhoeffer calendar. I want to talk about the uh, relationship between joy and redemption at Advent, and it's a, it's a thread that is like so powerfully written into the story in ways that we don't always realize. The term for joy or a joy cognate is used like four or five times, depending on how you count it, in the first two chapters of Luke. Now, here's a trivia question. There is an emotion, which you have the evidence for, that immediately precedes joy all but one time in Luke. What is it? Fear. Fear. See, that guy's a reader. So I want to talk about that a little bit. I want to talk about fear preceding joy. And then I want to talk a little bit about the unique circumstance in which uh, fear does not precede joy. And of course, uh, in part out of, I don't know, uh, fidelity to the order on the Advent wreath. But, you know, who knows what that stuff came from, the origins are murky. 16th century Lutherans, as I understand it. But uh, obviously something that doesn't uh, organize the way we think about uh, preparing our hearts for Christmas. And in thinking about preparing our hearts for Christmas, that obviously like to focus more on how the Bible helps us understand the character of joy and the character of redemption and 
you know, I won't talk about why the candle's pink or whatever. The I think I've done, I don't know, some version of this riff a number of times before. It's a fairly familiar one at uh, Resurrection Church, but I th uh, joy is one of those themes that I think is underemphasized in our particular kind of evangelical brand of, of Christianity. I consider us to be firmly and strongly evangelical, but in part to do so means to look carefully at scripture and to let it surprise us, to see what it is that is specific about it, that is uh, often read out of it, that we don't pay attention to when the text is kind of screaming at us to pay attention to it. And so I take the fact that Luke uses a joy cognate, you know, like I said, four or five times as a kind of, I don't know, attempt to scream at us as we read it, to see something about the importance of and the connection of joy to the Christmas narrative. And in fact, the only theme that appears more frequently in Luke than that joy theme, it's like a close tie, I guess, depending on how you could interpret it, it could be a first or second, is judgment or justice. Like, think about Mary's song. Think about Mary basically deciding that uh, to, to, to sing about a, a son that will, I don't know, tear down the nations and make everything's uh, right by coming into the world. And those don't really show up that often in our Advent reflections. I guess we've talked a lot about judgment in Advent. I did that series about how Christmas was, uh, was a war on the orders of sin, death, and destruction. And last week we talked about the ideas, we talked about love of holy discomfort. Remember Bonhoeffer's comparison between Advent and the prison cell? Advent's not exactly just the run-up to the holiday season where we get ready to unwrap a bunch of great stuff, but it should turn our hearts in understanding who Jesus is and the character of Jesus to become intensely uncomfortable with the context that we see around us and become intensely uncomfortable with the orders of sin, death, and destruction. And I don't know, it's a consistent theme for us, I think, to try and understand the idea that reflection about Advent is exciting and fun and it is ultimately, though, about us understanding the coming of Jesus into our own lives and thinking about the ways that the coming of Jesus into our own lives changes us and makes demands on us and asks us to be different. So if we think about joy in the same way, when we normally think about joy, well, I don't know, like, I think about my favorite sports team winning, <laughs> you know, I think about the, like, three minutes that it takes for everybody to kind of run through the presents on Christmas morning, our normal sense of joy, and even the dictionary defines it as, the, I don't know, like, what, like, transitory intense pleasure or something like that and you know i like that joy <laughs> that joy is great i'm all for it we should have it as, as much as we can but i don't think it's the vision of joy that scripture is talking about and so what i want to do is kind of walk through how the old testament thinks about joy i'll walk a little bit through how the new testament thinks about joy and then i'll kind of talk about why it is that i think that the vision of joy is so tightly tied to an understanding of what exactly is going on when Jesus decides to break into the world and to make all things new. So, uh, you know, the Old Testament framing of joy, and this is actually a riff that I, I in, uh, indirectly stole from Travia N.T. Wright. The Old Testament framing of joy is not like our sense of joy as, boy, things are really, really, really great. Uh, you know, and there are examples of like in, in there's a section in Deuteronomy that talks about tithing and offering to God. And it says that after you give an offering, this is Deuteronomy 26, 11, then you shall rejoice in all the good things the Lord your God has given you and your household. And, and the vision of joy and rejoicing there is not a feeling. I mean, I guess if you shovel out some stuff or sacrifice or for the tithe, maybe you feel overwhelming joy at it. Brian can tell us if that's actually true. 
in fact, as he <laughs> receives tithe checks. But the point here was that the response of joy was like a ritual obligation. It was something that was part of how you completed the ceremony of sacrifice. And so rejoicing there, and we had this in Sunday school class this morning, we talked a lot about like Job and the performance of ritual and how we think about the performance of ritual. And I don't know, like in the Old Testament, there wasn't a lot of thought, at least as I can understand, about how the ritual made you feel. The main question was, were you following the laws prescribed by God? And so here in Deuteronomy, the vision of joy is not as much like, hey, it's great to be able to burn up those choice cuts of meat. I'd be a little sad about it because I love me some choice cuts of meat. But instead, it's the idea that you completed the sacrifice by demonstrating that you felt happy about uh, doing your obligation under the law. So joy, at least in the Old Testament, is sort of a liturgical response. It's something that you're supposed to do. But, you know, the other thing that's really interesting about how the New Te- Old Testament talks about joy is that joy is most of the time in the Old Testament, and Trey can check me on this with his near encyclopedic knowledge of it, but most of the time joy that it's brought up is connected with what? God's righteous judgment. Like, there's not a lot of talk about joy around, like, the celebratory vision of joy that we talk about, but most of the things that we find in the Old Testament that refer to joy are in some way talking about God's righteousness being uh, exercised on and making the world right. So Psalm 96 has a kind of similar take. Uh, Joy is a response to God's righteous judgment. Let the heavens rejoice. Let the earth be glad. The sea resound and all that is in it, let creation rejoice before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. Now, our vision of joy is just kind of like untroubled, happy, I don't know, heightened state of experience doesn't quite square with the idea of joy as understood in the Old Testament, which is about seeing the fact that God is going to judge the world. And As we know from the ways that we've talked about judgment, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, judgment always contains this element of like, I don't know, violence. Remember that stuff about gutting fish that we talked about in, I guess, what was that? The Gospel of Matthew? Like, judgment doesn't seem for us to typically invoke joy. We kind of have, in fact, in our culture, we have massively negative feelings about it, don't we? Like, I don't know, isn't the best way to shut someone down is to tell them not to be so judgmental? Or don't we secretly either take pleasure in or <laughs> admitting that we are accusing other people of being judgy. But the, the, the point is it, it, judgment doesn't seem to square with our understanding of joy. It's just like untroubled uh, experience of happiness. Although as the Old Testament thinks about it, not only is it a kind of ritual function, but it is a function that I guess at best is an extension of seeing the beauty of God's righteousness. And that we don't necessarily take joy in the implications of judgment as much as we take joy in the fact that it is an expression of who God is and why it matters that God is making the world right. And I don't know, Isaiah 35 has a sentiment like that. Those who have been ransomed by the Lord will enter Jerusalem singing and crowned with everlasting joy. Sorrow and mourning will disappear and they will be filled with joy and gladness. So one of the things I want you to think about is that this view of joy as like a response to God's righteousness does not fully drop out of how the New Testament talks about joy. Like we might say, ah, you know, there's this kind of Old Testament vision of joy that's about being really awfully excited about God's righteousness, but in the New Testament, obviously the vision of joy changes. And it doesn't. In fact, one of the reasons why the angels and why in Mary's song and why a number of times in the kind of narrative of Advent are declaring the possibility of joy is that they're saying that Jesus is going to make the world right, that Jesus is going to confront the orders of sin 
and of death and destruction. But there is a slight tweak in how the New Testament talks about joy compared to that Old Testament vision of like fulfilling the ritual or focusing on God's righteousness. So here's the New Testament fold in the story of joy. Jesus is probably the clearest articulation of it in John 15. Abide in my love as I abide in the love of the Father. I have told you these things that you may be what? Filled with my joy. Yes, your joy will overflow. Joy, at least as Jesus talks about it in John, is not just a feeling that we might have when we've successfully performed a religious ritual or when we contemplate the character of God's righteousness. Joy is something that stems from a relationship in which we abide in love. Joy stems from a relationship in which we abide in love. And the weird thing about the Greek word kara for joy is that it's not quite an action, it's not quite a feeling, and it's not quite a state. It's sort of all of those things. Jesus is inviting us to abide in the state of closeness between him and the Father. Jesus is inviting us to act as if we love him and by proxy the Father. And Jesus is inviting us to feel something about the character of that commitment. So like, if in the Old Testament sense of joy, joy is like, I don't know, an obligation that you have to kind of complete the back end of a ritual, in the New Testament, the vision of joy is something like, it's a form of both action and participation in the very character and in the very life of God. And the word for abide that Jesus uses there, meno, that's why Greek's such a beautiful language to me. It means both to be placed and to remain and to act in. To be placed, to remain, and to act in. That, I think, is what is different about the vision of joy that we're supposed to encounter in the coming of Jesus Christ, that we're supposed to encounter in seeing the character of the kingdom, and that we're supposed to encounter in understanding what exactly Advent is about, not just as a kind of ritual celebration or preparation for the holiday, but instead to imagine in, in, in the richest possible terms that Jesus is coming into and transforming each one of our lives continually. And we open our heart to experience Christmas, not because of its status as a singular day, but instead we want to be open to the movement of and the full incarnation of God in each one of our lives. That's why I think when, when Paul, the, why, you know, uh, the, Paul reflects that same vision of joy, which is not just like an obligation, it's not just a feeling, it's a, it's a moment of participation and being placed in and being put into action in a way that aligns you with God. In Colossians, may you be filled with joy, always thanking the Father. He has enabled you to share in the inheritance that belongs to his people who live in the light. What is joy? It's certainly not just a feeling. Joy is a being placed in a relationship in which you understand that everything that you have is given to you, that nothing that you have is something that you deserve. And as a result, you come to understand that God is, in fact, the source and fount of every good and perfect gift. To abide in that kind of joy then is a weird kind of joy that makes you somewhat agnostic towards the things that are going on around you because you see at the center that Jesus Christ is the source, the object, the purpose, the telos, and the direction of our joy. Think about that. That's what it means then to fully abide. C.S. Lewis, you know, I don't cite him very often, but he has a great definition of joy and surprised by joy. And at first it sounds like a bunch of kind of professorial gobbledygook, but I think it makes a great point. Ready? Here it is. Joy is unsatisfied desire 
which is itself more desirable than any other satisfaction. Joy is unsatisfied desire, which is itself more desirable than any other satisfaction. What does he mean? Well, as I take it, he's riffing on this idea of joy being a product of abiding in love. And in fact, you all know, and I've talked about it before, the Greek word for joy, anybody remember this shtick? Do anybody remember where it comes from? The Greek word for joy is kara. Anybody remember where it comes from? I sit at home at night and think someday, someone's going to nail it, I'll think my life will have meaning. So, kara, joy, comes from the word charis, which means grace. Joy is derived from the extension of grace. And it's a beautiful word, word because it also, way back in its kind of ancient etymological history in Greece, it was also the thing that served as the root word for like the chorus, the folks who would sing in a play, uh, for kora, for, for dancing. But the idea was that this idea of joy, at least as thought about in the Greek tradition, and then I think fully, I don't know, made fully radically powerful in the Christian tradition is the idea that joy is not simply a feeling, but it's a state in which we abide in the irrational and undeserved gift of grace. And that our whole life becomes an extension of that grace, that joy in that sense is not just a sense of elation, it's a deep sense of thankfulness that tells us that no matter what happens to us or no matter where we are, that the fact that we are loved by and abide in a God who loves us, that gives us a satisfaction, it gives us a home, it gives us a place, it gives us a a location, it gives us a purpose in life, and that that's why it is a pleasure that is more, uh, what is it, desirable than any satisfaction. Because all the specific things that could give us that I don't know, immediate pop of joy, opening presents or your team winning, or if you like roller coasters, if you eat a really good meal or whatever the thing is that makes you feel that kind of heightened or elated state, whatever it is that produces that sense of elation for you is only possible because what? It is a good and perfect gift that is given us by our God. And that everything in our existence is an act of grace. We talked about the relationship between grace and creation for weeks not too long ago. And I think joy is to abide in the fact that everything you have has been given to you and that Christmas and that the incarnation of Jesus Christ is not only the singular representation of it, but instead it is also the very logic of and it is the very movement by which God comes to be with us, to abide in us meaningfully. And then the joy that the Christian feels then is more than that acute feeling of pleasure or happiness. It is a rootedness. It is a being at home and it should simultaneously make us uncomfortable about the places where we live because it should shape us and make us different. And that is the revolutionary possibility that is built in to the vision of joy in the Christmas tradition. And joy then is not only about the sense of pleasure that we might get out of or the sense of elation that we might get out of it, but joy should make a demand on us. Joy should change us when we see that everything that we have, our breath, our family, our community, our inheritance of the kingdom, any of those things, those things are derived from and are related to the giving of Jesus Christ in grace. They are the embodiment 
of agape, to live in joy and to experience joy, is to embrace God's agapic love for us and be thankful for it in the same way that we just talked about in the pastoral letters. Joy is a response to God's unconditional self-giving, and as a result, it entails the pleasure of loving and of being loved on the deepest level imaginable, and that realization should both make us uncomfortable about the world around us, but it should simultaneously demonstrate to us that there is a source of meaning and of value and of love in Jesus Christ, God incarnate, that not only invests in us a sense of holy discomfort, but that breaks our heart for the world, and finally, that turns us towards others with the obligation and the demand to be the hands and fate and face and feet of Christ, not because there is an obligation entitled in the law, but because we live out of the grace that Christ has showed us. That, I think, is what joy is. And here's the interesting thing. If you understand joy as being something that should both mess your world up a little bit, so you ask yourself, why is it that I value what I value? And you simultaneously see the possibility of joy, of being rooted to something which is higher than and more beautiful than you can possibly imagine. Then you can understand why in Luke, joy and fear are so tightly paired, except for in one case. I mean, I don't know, shoot, if you're Zachariah and an angel appears to you and you're not particularly used to, like, sightings of divine personages, the coming of an angel when you're hanging out sacrificing or doing whatever it is that you're doing, you can imagine that it would be pretty discomforting. You can see why it would start a strike in you the possibility of fear, and not just because you hadn't seen an angel before, and not just because angels may have been ripped or whatever, but also because the coming of an angel announces a message, and a message that might potentially fundamentally change the way that you engage your world. And so Zachariah sees the angel and is gripped with fear, but what is the angel's response to that fear? Joy. Joy will come. Joy is the response to fear because joy demonstrates to us that there's no reason to fear because everything is given to us in the person of Christ Jesus. Zachariah feels that fear and he feels that discomfort and we all might feel that fear and discomfort from seeing an unexpected divine person. But the point is, at least in the vocabulary of heaven, heaven's love language for the world, we feel that fear perhaps in seeing the fact that our lives will change and that there are things that are unexpected on the horizon and we don't control everything. And the message that God consistently delivers through the angels is instead of that fear, you should feel joy. Joy is coming if you abide in my love. And it's the same for the shepherds. Like, you can understand the reasons why they're freaked out too. There's a surprise divine messenger, and you can imagine that there's all kinds of terror bound up with that and spectacle. And of course, like, all the weird things that shepherds might think about why an angel would be showing up to them that we've talked about for years around here. But once again, what is the answer for the angels? It's to frame that moment of terror. It's to frame that moment of realization that the world is about to change. It's to frame the danger potentially announced by these heavenly messengers with what? By saying, look, y'all, it may well be that you're scared now, but this will bring joy. It will be out an outpouring of an act of grace that will change us and invite us to abide in it and be at home in it. That's why I think joy is so consistently connected to fear. Joy should change us. It should mess things up. It should come and strike us sometimes in ways that are totally unexpected. It shows us that we're not fully in control, that we're not the masters of our own destiny, that everything that we have is given to us. It entails all kinds of things that make, make us feel uncomfortable. But for us to abide in, to have faith in, to love, to believe in the person of Jesus Christ, to meet and to see and to feel the presence of Jesus Christ is the ultimate thing that brings about a joy that erases fear. 
That's my theory why the only time in Luke where joy and fear are not paired is John the Baptist jumping in his mother's belly at the direct presence of Jesus Christ. And I think the thing that we're supposed to take from that is that when you see him, when you meet him, when you are in his presence, when you abide as deeply as you possibly can, there is no room even for the fear that says my life will change or be different. There is no room for the fear that says that the world is going to act in ways that are strange to me because all there is is the face and the presence and the person of Jesus Christ. A presence and a person that is so powerful that it could even cause a teeny little baby on hearing the echo of the voice of Jesus' mother through his own mother's belly to leap in the womb out of joy. Imagine that. Imagine what it means to have the direct presence of Jesus Christ be so present in each one of our lives that we are so able to abide in it and he in us that it erases any conception of fear, that it makes us not worry about what might change or what might not change, that it causes us to be indifferent towards the problems or the challenges that we face. And instead, we plant our eyes and our person and the whole of our being on him. And in doing so, and in, 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 in inviting his presence into our life, we are able to be made different to receive in the fullest possible way, the gift of grace. The declaration of joy at Advent and the things that bringing it about will take always potentially cause fear for us. But the point of joy in the kingdom is not just that God's kingdom is rad, but that it makes a claim on us that asks us to be different and to change. And that can feel difficult. But when Christ is present to us, when we seek his presence and abide in his love, it becomes a desire that becomes more desirable than any satisfaction. That's the thing about joy as a Christian and the point of joy in the Christmas narrative. We can see the source and abide in it, or we can recoil in fear because we wonder about how it might change for us, or we can perhaps fetishize or focus on smaller pleasures, smaller moments of joy. We can flee from the depth of joy that is given us by a life lived for Jesus, we can bury ourselves in the concerns of the day, or we, like baby John the Baptist, teeny little baby John the Baptist, can sense the presence of Jesus Christ to us directly, abide in it, to find ourselves to be overflow, overflowing in us, to find ourselves to be fully wrapped in and ensconced in and housed in it, and to seek out a deeper and more abiding joy that comes from being in and seeking out his presence and doing his will. And to do it, we have to give ourselves over to it. We need to rest in it and see that it is arbitrary and see that we do not deserve it and see that, I don't know, maybe we'll mess up our attempts to seek after it, but it is a joy that finally exceeds all others, that abides in the unchangeable ground of God's goodness. It is a joy that comes into the world at Jesus' birth that not only makes us happy, but sustains us and nourishes us. And because we see that joy beyond and subtending all pleasures, because we see that security beyond every possibility of threat or every grant of security, because we see the love that is beyond all loves, in that joy we are made secure and we are made fulfilled. And I can't say it any better than Philippians 4, which I just want to remind you as a nerdy side note, is just a hop and a skip and a jump away from the Christ hymn that says that Christ did not consider Godhood something to be held on to, but emptied himself to what? To be with us. And because he is with us, Philippians 4 says, therefore, Brothers and sisters who I love and long for, you are my joy and crown. Stand firm in the Lord. Rejoice 
in the Lord always. I say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. Because why? Because the Lord is near. And because he is near, do not be anxious about everything, but in every situation, with prayer, petition, and thanksgiving, make your requests known to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Amen. Questions, talk, discussion? Fair on the Old Testament? You've got caveats. Yeah, no, I actually um, wanted to say, like, uh, you know, one of the things, like, we have this weird idea about, like, how the sacrifices work, but one of the one of the things that they did was uh, they were basically almost like detergent. It was like a way you could clean, like, the blood was like the life, and it was like you were spreading life, which allowed God to be present with you. Hmm. And so you were, like, cleaning away the corruption of the world, and that allowed God to, 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 to be there. And so I was like, you know, you can really see like more of a connection between mm-hmm. the two ways that you mentioned um, that joy was used in the Old Testament. Like it was used about um, the response to uh, sacrifices, but also the idea that God's ju- judgment, uh, because what is God's judgment? It's a way to like mm-hmm. allow his presence to be there. Mm-hmm. And so... Uh, you know, that idea of joy and that concept, I think you can connect those two um, by, by kind of fleshing that out a little bit. Mm. But, so that was cool. That was cool. Right. Anybody else? Joy. Joy? Joy. Okay, prayers of the people. What do we got? I've got uh, Rise Against Hunger. What else? That's it. Let's pray. God, we thank you for today. I thank you for uh, every person that you brought to resurrection. I just ask that you make us, um, the people and, and the church more generally, that you desire us to be, help us to be fully submissive to and open to your leading and your will. And we just pray that we are faithful in being your people and in living in the world as you call us to. Be with us today as we do uh, Rise Against Hunger. We just pray that it's a benefit to the people who receive the food and to the folks that we interact with. We pray for the firebees and uh, other uh, folks whom we've been engaged with around medical needs and relocation needs and all the other kind of service uh, things that we have more broadly in the congregation. Help us to be just good agents of and demonstrators of you, your character, your kindness, your heart. Help us to be your hands and feet. We lift up our kids as they get ready for the holiday season. Each one of us is we not only reflect on uh, what it means to invite you into our lives more fully and to fully embrace your grace and your incarnation in the world, but also God help them as they wrap up school and do all the other things that they do. We pray that you bless the holidays at Resurrection Church, but more importantly that you convict us with the holy discomfort that makes us uh, ever more committed to being your people in the world. We lift all those things up to you, Lord God, and praise you taught us to pray.
Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. God, be with us as we search our hearts and minds, open them and uh, all of us to uh, just see the places where we have fallen short of what you've called us to do, or where we have done what you asked us not to do. And so, Lord, uh, to the best of our ability, we confess before you silently the places where we have sinned. And so we confess together. Most merciful God, we confess that we are in bondage to sin and cannot free ourselves. We have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us. Forgive us, renew us, and lead us so you may delight in your will, walk in your ways, to the glory of your holy name. Amen. Having worshipped, affirmed our faith, uh, confessed, received forgiveness, lifted up the word, it's uh, come to the time in our service where we um, uh, do what it is that Jesus told us to do whenever we gather. Are you going to need my helper? You can give me one. So if you uh, agree, as we do, that uh, you're a person who has fallen short of God's measure, that you have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and that um, believe that by uh, virtue of your belief in Jesus' sacrifice, then this is not the uh, meal of Resurrection Church. This is Jesus' meal. It's a meal to which the whole church is invited, and so we invite you to take communion with us. In the night in which he was betrayed... Our Lord took bread, we broke it, sorry, I'll make sure everybody gets their bread out, good, Mm -hmm. broke it saying, this is my body, broken for you, do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after he'd eaten, he took the cup and he raised it, saying, this is my blood, shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins, it represents a new covenant, the body of Christ given for us. And so we eat and drink not only because it nourishes us as a community, but it reminds us of the great feast, which we will all, one day all attend around the table of heaven with our Lord and God. Please rise with me for the doxology and the benediction.
Go in peace and serve the Lord.